the good, the, good, the bad, the bad, and, and the ugly, the ugly, ugly. with Terence Pillay. Sally LaCrancy, thank you so much for talking to us. What a treat to have you. Tell me about this new series of documentaries um, that is being launched. Thanks um, for taking the opportunity to speak to me, Terence. My the honor is all mine. Um, we set off on a journey about three years ago, um, I together with Karin Laubscher from Brainwave Productions. We had this idea of telling some stories that Madiba told me over the years, um, and specifically in Afrikaans. Um, can you believe it that 30 years after his release, um, there's nothing that's been done in, exclusively in Afrikaans about Madiba's history? So I felt an almost self-imposed um, obligation to tell some of these stories, also to allow um, the Afrikaans-speaking community to be part of it, but not excluding anyone, so it's all subtitled. So we follow um, Madiba's footsteps more or less, but it is not the Madiba, the ordinary Madiba history or Madiba story. We've looked at specifically the people and the places, the environment that shaped the character of Nelson Mandela. Um, we all are brought up in our own communities, and it impacts our lives, and it prepares us for the rest of our lives. So I wanted to know what is it that made Nelson Mandela the character that I met in 1994 when, when I walked into the Union buildings. And we've come across some extraordinary discoveries. Um, it is really, it was a, like a treasure uh, a chest for me opening as well, you know, things that I never expected to find. And then also um, the magical part of it of standing in the bedroom where Madiba slept when he went to boarding school, sitting at the tree that he used to sit as a little boy at the regent's house. Um, you know, there's these little things, standing in the Palace of Justice, walking up from the holding cells to, into the Palace of Justice and trying to imagine what went through his mind before he was given life sentence. So those are all the things that I relived um, and that I wanted to know more about. And I wanted to feel and I wanted to also recall some of these stories that he told me. And that is the six-part series. Um, it's 52-minute episodes uh, over, over, as I say, six parts. So Zelda, never mind you that know Mandela so well and so intimately. Um, you know, anyone who's ever known or met the man knows that there's just so much about him out there. How did you go about the task of choosing what makes it into the, the series? Well, first of all, we didn't want to tell my story. It's not about me. And I didn't want to tell Madiba's story, um, you know, the, his, 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 all these life events. I wanted specifically to, dis to, to look at the places and the people and the role of his tradition, for instance, in, in, in his life. So at first, when we set off, when Karin and I set off on this journey, um, it was murky. We didn't really know where this was going. And then we did an interview with um, the now-deceased woman, Eddie Daniels, in Cape Town. And um, he recollected some memories of Madiba, and I was very anxious because um, he was diagnosed with two types of cancer. And the, the interview with him, Eddie that day pretty much set the tone for the rest of, of, the, um, of, of the series. It is really about how people also perceived him, what he meant to them, what he meant to the world. 
but then how they also influenced him and what they think, the people who knew him, what they think shaped his character, what events in his life, um, you know, shaped his character or the person. So it was a difficult and daunting task, and this is definitely not the Alpha and the Omega on Nelson Mandela's history. This is just a single part um, of uh, hopefully... Um, coloring in this broader picture of Nelson Mandela's very complicated life mm -hmm. and 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 um, uh, uh, um, yeah life path, as I would say. So um, it is it is um, it is not perfect. It won't any. I don't think anything that's ever done or that's been done about Madiba can ever be perfect and satisfy everyone. But for us, it is the story we wanted to tell. You know, to look around um, the events of his mother's death. Um, what role she played in his life, what type of person was Nosekeni Mandela really. So those are the things that really interested me personally, mm -hmm. and I think uh, that set the tone. So, I mean, you are telling these stories along the way. Do you bring any of... Uh your kind of personal interaction and information that you might have had with Madiba over the years, does that make it into the series? Yes, um, some of it. Um, you know, of course, um, there's, uh, there's a lot of stories that he told me, and I don't want to in any way retell those stories, but I take snippets from those stories that he tells me, that he told me, and I, I, I take them into the documentary and explore parts of those stories. Um, specifically about his mother. I mean, he spoke a lot about his mother, but I never really knew, um, you know, who her friends were, how she lived, um, what kind of character was she, what kind of relationships did they have. Although he told me about his mother and how much he loved her and so on. So that's just to give you an idea that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's um, certain things that we really focused on that that's of personal interest to me. And, and those things stem from the stories he really told me. So let me take you back almost 20 years. Tell me about that initial meeting with the man himself. Okay, um, yes, a life-changing moment, of course, as for many other people as well when they met Nelson Mandela for the first time. It was 1994 um, when I started working in his office. I was, of course, employed by his private secretary, Mary Mkladana. Uh, she was, uh, um, you know, working in his office a few, she started a few months before me and she urgently needed an assistant. I happened to be at the union building's at the right time, at the right place on a particular day when Mary burst into this office and announced that she needed an assistant. So um, I didn't really know what to expect and for the first two weeks into the job I never, I, whenever I heard the president arrive I locked my office door. I was still afraid of him because remember I was sold a narrative in which we are enemies. Um, in which our ideals can't uh, reconcile. So I don't know what to expect of this person, and I'm quite aware that at that point that I'm responsible, kind of responsible, um, you know, being an Africa, white Afrikaner for what had happened to this man. So I feel guilty as well. So I locked my office door whenever I heard him arrive. And about two weeks into the job, I walked into Mary's office to deliver a document and nearly bumped into him. He um, was surrounded by bodyguards, and I realized, you know, because of their physique, that these were all bodyguards. And then he stood in front of me, and it was it was a shock at first. Initially, it's just a shock, and um, being confronted with this 
larger than life figure. I mean, he was as tall as I am, um, two centimeters taller. And um, he smiles at me. And I'm confused immediately because I'm not expecting him to smile. I'm expecting an angry face. And the first thing many people will, will agree, the first thing that you noticed when you met Nelson Mandela for the first time is this incredible kindness in his eyes and that infectious smile of his and just the generosity on his face overall. And he's extending his hand and I thought to myself, well, is it proper to shake hands with the president? I wanted to run away. <laughs> um, but then I took his hand and um, immediately I, I felt the calluses in his in his, inside his hands from, of course, the work, the years of hard labor on Robben Island. And there was suddenly a pause and I realized, wait, 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 the president asked me something and I was so confused. And I, 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 I clearly realized I didn't hear what he was asking. So I said, um, not even pardon me, I said, excuse me, Mr. President, I was just so shocked. And when he repeated himself, um, he spoke, I realized he was speaking to me in Afrikaans. Now, it's not that his Afrikaans wasn't good, but the, my brain wasn't wired to expect that he would speak to me in this much-hated, so-called hated language of the oppressor. And I was so shocked because he really showed an interest in me. In, and in that moment... I think I was present in my life for the first time, um, where I was absent from history and absent from my own life for much before that. In that moment, Madiba grasped it by showing me the person that I never expected him to be and showing me the opposite of what I was brought to believe about him. Um, and it was quite a shock to my system. And he asked about my family and about my upbringing. And we stood there and, you know, I just, just, I was completely overcome with emotion and I just started crying, as many people did when I, when I, whenever they met him, as I saw them when they met him over the years. And um, he was still holding onto my hand and he saw that I was, I was crying, tears just rolling down my face. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, no, 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 relax. You are overreacting now. And, I mean, when a president tells you you are overreacting, you compose yourself. Well, never mind a president. This is Nelson Mandela. Exactly, exactly. Um, but, I've, as you know, I subsequently saw that people are so overtaken by this moment when they meet Madiba for the first time, um, him almost exposing himself to every person that he met. Um, that was It was the raw emotion, that raw... Um, authenticity almost in him that baffled people, that people generally broke out and sobbed and cried and couldn't speak and they, all kinds of emotions but it was a, it was a very common uh, um, response from people and over the years of course I, I then realized what people are doing and, and, and I, I used to say to them don't cry don't cry because can I tell you something now you have one moment to meet Madiba and for the rest of your life you're only going to remember that you cry that you cried so um, take it from me this is the best advice I can give you sour the moment and 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 you know just be happy and converse with him um, it didn't always help of course and people didn't take advice freely sometimes so um, yeah it was it was quite interesting to watch, but he personified, the, I think, the best version of a human being that we all so desperately want to be, and that's what intrigued people all over the world. And that was the start of this long and really beautiful relationship. But you weren't just—you didn't just work for him. You had eventually become his friend. And what was 
that journey like over nearly two decades with the man that everyone revered? Look, um, yeah, at, at, at first it was, a, it was a very formal kind of relationship because I um, was also brought up in a house where there's a great deal of respect for um, seniority and even though politically Madiba and I at that stage um, you know, I I didn't buy into his ideology immediately um, because I didn't know better. I didn't know what he was about, his ideals and so on. Um, but I had this in, in, inherent respect for the person because he was a president. That's how we were brought up. Uh, so it was a it was a formal kind of relationship for the first few years, and when he of course noticed my complete dedication to this job, uh, you know, it consumed my life. I was in it 200%. I was always first to arrive at the office. I was always first to react when he needed something from someone, someone, you know, one of the assistants to help. And um, of course then our, our relationship really changed in 1999 when he retired and he could choose one person um, to work into retirement with him and then of course he chose me, which I still consider the biggest honor of my life. Then the relationship uh, trans, how do you say, transformed to another level. Then it became like a, a grandfather, granddaughter, um, because now there's no infrastructure, there's no other stuff, it's just us. Um, and we travel together and we work together and we are almost codependent um, because I'm depending on him not to fire me because I don't have another job and I really want this to work and I really want to be successful in supporting him and um, he gets very used to the fact that I answer the phone at 2 o'clock in the morning or I'm always there and always on time and I'm so over-dedicating myself so over-extending myself rather so um, yeah it was a, at, at the end it was a grandfather-granddaughter relationship and um, I loved him dearly. It was really like um, my dearest grandfather as well. And you know, everyone wanted to meet the man. So how did he react to that or were you the buffer between those hundreds, thousands of people and him? Yes, um, it was daunting. I mean, the pressure was relentless. Over the years, I realized that, you know, if Madiba could just sit in a chair all day and open his doors and everyone just stream in as in they wish they would probably have killed him you know he won't have any he wouldn't have had energy to do anything else um uh, I, I mean and, and it would really be exhausting he would he would be happy to do that um the problem is that you know many people didn't really come for just the meeting or just the photo um you 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 had to make sure um, that there was no hidden agendas, you know, that the, the relationship is a, is a, is a clean, re, uh, reputable one, you know, all those little things that we now know of. Um, the checks and balances had to be done before he meets a, 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 a anyone. So it was a difficult process and, and, and he didn't always, um, well, in the beginning, um, it was difficult to persuade him that it's to his own benefit, um, that we have a structure in place where a few people actually take decisions about who he sees, um, when he sees them, what he does, what he associates with, because um, no one ever wanted to be, um, you know, the person uh, that makes a knee-jerk kind of decisions and then it turns out to be disastrous. I don't know if you've ever asked this before, but what was he like behind closed doors when 
all the adulation and all all the fanfare around him had ended. It was just you and him in his office behind closed doors. This incredible sense of humour. Um, he would sit sometimes and read a newspaper and put down the newspaper and then think of something funny to say or think of, you know, how to spin something in a funny way. Um, he was completely comfortable with who he was, both in public and in private, but it wasn't a different person um, or it wasn't two different people. It was very similar kind of characters. Um, he didn't have a personality change as people expect him uh, or expect it would be um, for a great statesman like that. He was very much the person that everyone saw. Um, he was kind and generous and with his time and his love, um, he was authentic. Uh, he was non-judgmental. But Madibab had his frailties, you know, he, um, he always encouraged people, he said, remember, I have vices and virtues like everyone. So he, he, he could be stubborn sometimes, and um, if there was any kind of wastage around him, that would irritate him. If there was people that was disrespectful, it would irritate him. And then that side of Madiba is a side that you don't necessarily always saw in the public play out, because... Um, you know, people always presented their best sides when they were in public with him. So when things like that happened, it was difficult to um, try and, and 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 convince him. You know, also to to not to let go, but to um, move on very quickly. It's not that he held grudges at all, nothing like that. But you know, I'm in a bad mood. It's not a switch you turn on and off, and then you are in a you know in a better mm -hmm. mood. So, and 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 for the next meeting, if someone angered him, for the next meeting he had to be the kind person again, because then that angry person, he, the person in front of him, is not the person he's angry at. So, um, you know, it 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 um he when there was a lot of discussions between the two of us when when i took wrong decisions or when i felt that he was unfair um in a situation we discussed it um but once he has taken uh, note or cognizance of all people's input around him he would stick to that point and then that kind of stubbornness you know to what to what his decision was that is um that is probably a side the only side um you know that that that, that people didn't really know about him of of him where were you when you heard that he had passed on i was uh in my house in midrand um Actually, up to now, no one has called me. It's it's terrible. No? But actually, up to now, no one has told me in so many words that he has passed away. Um, there was so much secrecy and smoke and mirrors around the last few days of his of his of his life. Um, I saw Mrs. Marshall on the Monday, and he passed away on the Thursday. I saw Mrs. Marshall on the Monday, and I I know her also quite well. So I could sense on her facial expression that things went well. It wasn't always necessary for me to ask. And I also didn't want to add to the pressure of millions of people asking her, how is Madiba? So I could read her to some extent as well, and I could see, you know, things are not well. 
In the afternoon, I spoke to Josina Michelle about something else, and I said, listen, I'm worried about mum. It seems that she's very stressed, and Josina just said to me, yes, uh, things are, are difficult. Then on the Thursday of his passing, um, Mrs. Michelle called me in the morning, and she said... Um, it was a strange request. Uh, she just said to me, um, remember that list you had drafted for me uh, a few years ago about important people around Madiba? I need that list, a copy of that list again. And then I knew. Um, okay, you know, but now it's the, it's the, it's that also that anxiety of not knowing what to expect, when, how, has it happened, has it not happened? So I'm pretty much like everyone else watching the news. And I knew that, you know, it was on complete lockdown and they were not going to tell anyone. Um, and looking back now, I appreciate it because, um, uh, but in that moment, I was, I was kind of frustrated and angry, not knowing what's going on. And then um, I went to work to the foundation in Houghton as usual um, during the day and went home before traffic. And about five o'clock, she called me again and she said to me, um, please call Archbishop, Tutu, uh, Archbishop Tutu, um, Uncle George Bezos, Mr. Kathrada, Mr. Mbeki, Dikhangosineki, Judge Dikhangosineki. Uh, please call them and tell them, um, you know, things aren't looking good and we are expecting the, wor the worst. That's all. And of course, now she's telling me, so it's not like I'm removed from this. Now I know too. And you have to process those emotions as well. Yes, yes. But most importantly to me was to give execution to a task and to do it in such a way without causing panic now. Although it is, you can't avoid panic in that stage. Mm -hmm. So now I'm trying, I'm, I'm starting to get hold of people. And I can't speak to um, a third person because I need to speak to that person directly because now I'm also... On my own lockdown, I can't tr trust anyone because can you imagine the mm -hmm. kind of, 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 of chaos you can create if this now leaks? And um, I start getting hold of them one by one. And I think, who was it? Mr. Mbeki. When I called him, I think he was the last person I got hold of. And um, I said to him, and, I, and he didn't hear me clearly, and he said, um, you know, Mr. Mbeki has got that very stern way of responding sometimes. He said, what? And um, I, <laughs> I was also always a bit afraid of him. And I said, and I repeated myself, and he said, oh, okay. And he didn't put down the phone or say goodbye or nothing. I said, okay, sir, I'm thinking of you. Um, goodbye then. And then when I dropped that phone, it just poured out and I just cried. And this was probably about seven o'clock in the evening. And as you know, Madiba passed away um, around nine o'clock now. And um, I saw my phone picking up traffic, a lot of traffic. And people from America asking me what's going on. It's seven o'clock in the evening, you know. It obviously, he's, he's not passed on yet, but the rumors are starting to do the rounds. And I then realized that I can't, I can't um, withstand this pressure. I can't um, deal with it I, I, because I don't know how to. And also, I don't want to lie to people. I don't want to be put in a position to say I don't know because I do know. So I switched off my phone and I drank a sleeping tablet and I went to bed.
And I thought to myself, this is it. Um, you know, there is absolutely nothing I can do. And I really switched off my phone, and I, the next morning I woke up at about 4 o'clock, and I switched it on, and, I mean, there was literally trillions of messages. Um, I, I, I couldn't even go through all of them. I just realized I had to get ready and get to the foundation. And um, from there, there was, I had very little time then for my own emotions. Um, I just realized I could it happen. But up to today, I still also haven't, um, uh, hadn't seen Mr. Mbeki announcing his boss, uh, Mr. Zuma announcing his passing. Um, so it was just, yeah, I was almost swept away in that moment. If there is one thing about Madiba that you would take away after all these years of being his personal assistant and being his friend as well. What do you think that would be? Terence, it is that absolute, absolute, pure respect for another human life. Um, the fact that he didn't allow a person's achievements or um, misconduct or mistakes to influence the person that he saw in front of him. He didn't judge a person by the color of his skin, his dress code, his wealth, um, his religion, or you know, his appearance, nothing. Madiba connected to the human being that he found in front of him and he always it was a conscious decision to choose another person's humanity and to focus on that, um, irrespective of uh, ideology and so on. So it is really, that for me is the biggest, um, the biggest asset of his legacy um, for many people still to explore is how is it possible to respect a human being to such an extent? You feel, you, I mean, I've, I've tried to, to, to kind of practice it in my way, you know, to just, when I meet a person, when I treat, when I when I come across a person, to treat that person just with the utmost respect and to expect the best of that person. Of course, you are disappointed, but Madiba also never allowed this, his disappointments to influence his future interactions with people. So um, it was. It is the greatest gift he's leaving to us to show us how to truly be just an empathetic human being to another. Um, so for me, that is the treasure of his legacy. And so what is like life? Oh, sorry, what is life like after Nelson Mandela? I know that you've poured your heart into this docu, the series of documentaries now. But other than that, what is your life like these days? You know, he's um, Madiba. The, I'm very fortunate that he's still very much part of my life. Um, he's with me every day in different ways. I still think of him every single day, and it's it's strange that um, the further I move away, um, the clear clearer things are becoming for me. You know, it's only now that I truly realize or accept um, this incredible privilege I've had of working with him. Um, I, 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 I promise you after watching the second or the third episode of this documentary series, I wept. I, you know, that, that ugly one where you, where you don't want people to see, you know, that ugly cry. And I thought to myself, for the first time, I thought to myself, do you realize what happened to you? Do you realize who you worked for? Do you realize how blessed you are to have known this person and um, you know so 
he's very much still part of my life. I do motivational speaking. I share the lessons and my own change um, with people as well. Uh, yeah, the documentary. I work with um, some of his grandchildren from time to time on, on, on projects. Um, so it is different because, you know, you obviously you miss the person uh, like, like uh, you know, you would miss a parent or a grandparent or a sibling or whatever. You do miss that person's physical presence. But he's so, pre- he's so present still in my, in my memory and in my everyday life that um, it, is, it is true what a friend of mine said, um, that your relationship with a person doesn't end the day they pass on. Um, that relationship continues just in a different way, and I truly believe that. Finally, Zelda, what do you hope that this documentary series does? Well, there's a few things, actually. Um, I hope, first of all, that the target audience, of, of, of course, the first uh, target audience is um, Afrikaans-speaking people, um, that they will see another side of Nelson Mandela that they may not have been exposed to previously. Remember, as I said earlier, we were sold a narrative in which Nelson Mandela was packaged to us in a particular way. I want to show people, Afrikaans-speaking people specifically, that he's not only the president that wore a rugby jersey and a rugby cap. There's much, much more to him, and I want to show them what what that was all about. Secondly, I also hope to draw attention to the importance of us preserving our modern history. You know, Madiba's, the the, the recent history, Madiba's history is all we have, really. and I think all history that all South Africans, uh, you know, can share. So, so I hope to draw attention to some of these places of importance in his life, um, his schools, uh, the community where he was brought up in Kekuzweni in the Eastern Cape, um, where Dorkai House is in Johannesburg. Um, you know, the, those areas, the, the prisons and so on. I hope to draw attention. And, and hopefully um, people will see that there's a lot of refurbishment or upgrade or maintenance to be done at these places. And unless we preserve it, in 50 years from now, there's going to be nothing left for, for, for people to try and interpret this wonderful history we have um, of Nelson Mandela. So I think those are the main issues that I wish um, the documentary uh, uh, focuses on and, 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 and makes people think in a different way. And, and um, also it's just, it's just pure enjoyment. It is, um, you know, Karin Loebscher is an excellent director. She just has the ability to see things like no one else. And the footage you will see of South Africa, I mean, of every part um, in rural South Africa that played a role in Madiba's life, the footage will be the greatest part of entertainment for people, for South Africans and, you know, even people abroad that, that, that watch it. it. It is really the most beautiful I've seen um, of my own country. Well, we're looking forward to this. Uh, I wish you well in, with the documentary and with whatever else you're doing. You're very generous, Terence. Thank you for all your time and thank you for allowing me this opportunity. Always. Thanks.